Hi, I'm your host, Mark Stenson. In addition to these podcast interviews, I facilitate patient-doctor listening research, known as Innovate Groups. These panels have four patients and four doctors and provide an opportunity to observe and improve the interactions that lie at the heart of effective health care. I've created an ebook on this Innovate Group method, and I'd like to offer you a download. It includes real-life case studies to underscore the power of better patient-doctor listening. So visit biosciencebridge.com to download your ebook, Innovate Group Revolutions. Now, before I welcome today's guest, here's a familiar voice on an important health topic. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Rome. I've played many roles on TV and film, but today I want to speak to you as myself about a cause that's very dear to my heart. The Cancer Prevention and Treatment Fund provides free help to those who have cancer and those who wish to prevent it. They've also worked tirelessly on banning cancer-causing chemicals in our homes and neighborhoods. I want to thank them as a mom for protecting our families. Please donate today at the Cancer Prevention and Treatment Fund at StopCancerFund.com. Welcome to The Patients Speak, Healthcare Innovations Accelerating the Patient Journey. Featuring interviews with healthcare leaders and patient advocates. Here's your host, best-selling author, Mark Stinson. Welcome back, friends and colleagues, to our podcast, The Patients Speak where we combine the business and the science innovation of healthcare with the patient's voice to see how we can accelerate the patient's journey from diagnosis to wellness. And today our topic is improving women's health through empowering patients, education uh, of patients and health providers. And my guest is a doctor, health educator, strategist, and business advisor, combining all of these roles to see how we can improve women's health. Please welcome Dr. Michelle Griffin. Michelle, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much, Mark. It's lovely to be here and with you. Yes, I love this combination. And even as I say, Dr. Griffin, Dr. Michelle, I find that you probably have a nameplate on your desk that emits all of these roles, doesn't it? As a startup advisor, but also nearly 20 years experience as an OBGYN. How do you see then through your lens, this changing landscape, of course, overall health, but women's health in particular? And what do you really think we should hear when the patient's speak, not just markets and not just medical journals. What what do the patients need? Yeah, I think that's a really key question that we need to be asking ourselves as healthcare professionals, but as providers in any sense across the healthcare ecosystem. As you said, from my wide perspective as being a clinician and also being a patient at one time, and I'm sure to be in the future, and now working in the medical technology side and the far more commercial side of things, it's realizing that ultimately, we're only going to be successful in increasing and improving the standard of women's healthcare by really examining what patients want and what they need and what's going to be effective and what's really going to answer and make them feel better. And I think at the moment what we're seeing in women's healthcare is there's it's a massive growth area for sure. But I would definitely like to see more focus on what do we see patients needing. And I think we've got to be careful about understanding that the different roles that these quote unquote patients may fill 
um, whether they would be very much a consumer looking to buy something off the marketplace or whether they really are a patient sitting in secondary care in a hospital waiting room and looking for expert advice and key surgical intervention. It really is that whole spectrum. And we need to look at what they are wanting. And I think that's changing. And it's definitely different to where we were five years ago. Yes. Well, and certainly, as I mentioned, you have a viewpoint, and I love your sort of further refinement of the definition of patient. Um, You've worked the National Health Service and World Health Organization. So that's a very broad and national and global uh, view, but also, you know, seeing patients yourself. Uh, You've recently been uh, gaining a new role as a clinical and commercial advisor for the Holland and Barrett wellness retail chain. So I see what you mean that these sort of health-seeking consumers, whatever uh, point along the journey they may be, have different needs. Uh, what yeah, what are definitely. some of the challenges? And then companies try to fill those gaps and fill those needs. And they say, where's the underserved, unserved? Uh, where are the gaps? What, what are you seeing along that journey? And where do you think we should focus maybe more of our attention? Yeah, I think a big thing that I can see from my unique perspective is very much, as you say, the companies are coming to say, look, where are the unmet needs and how can we fill that? And it's a simple supply demand model. Let's look at what's not being done and let's go and do it. The thing is that it's more nuanced like that than that. Healthcare is complex and it's not about the next shampoo that's going to make your hair feel really clean and shiny. It's something far more complex and sophisticated and it's multifactorial. It's not only the biology or when that's gone awry and we're looking at the pathology and something abnormal that's leading to a disease, but it's also looking at the social and psychological effects and knock-on consequences from that condition, disease, symptom or whatever it be. And so it's not just that two-dimensional, what do I see in front of me as a woman is saying that they've got XYZ issue or they'd like to feel better in this certain area. It's understanding that, is that the extent of it? Is it a discrete bit that we could box up and offer an offering to help and solve that problem? Or more than likely is that there are these knock-on consequences and is what we're seeing and what the woman recognises and presenting with actually the first bit in the sequence or is it that's probably the issue that's number five along the way Mm. and actually we need to roll all the way back and say okay actually is this a problem for you is that a problem for you and if we fix this bit here what will that do moving forwards and how does this go out so we really do need to take a much wider look at what's going on and it's not going to be a quick fix solution by any means and then going to your second point of well what do we need in recognizing that there isn't this quick fix solution and they're not these point solutions because by and large women's health is the healthcare of women and their body, their anatomy, their biology, their hormones, their physiology, and all that social psychological setting that they are in from their being a baby all the way through to their death. It really is that cradle to grave. And it's a very different situation to what we have learned in healthcare as the default is the man. And therefore, we need to be thinking 
this is a whole different type of healthcare and well-being and wellness because we're looking at women rather than men. And so what we need to be conscious of is it's more complex and it needs to be effective, but effective across a continuum. We can't just pick up little bits and say, look, we're really interested in just helping you on this one bit. For example, I often talk about, you know, something like endometriosis or fertility. When we talk about reproductive issues, they come up time and time again as though that's all that is women's healthcare. Mm -hmm. But of course, when we think of healthcare for women, that's everything that's going on in a woman's body. And so even if we take those reproductive issues or we take something like a woman is complaining of chest pain, we need to look at that all of those different factors that are involved and make sure that we are dealing with that issue in context of everything that a woman is experiencing. And so where is she in her cycle? Is she premenopause, postmenopause? Is she taking contraceptive hormones? Has she just, is she just postnatal? Is there a different biology that we're dealing with? Because we will see that there is a massive difference between a 30 year old woman and a 70 year old woman that has, isn't to do with the chronological and biological age it is separate to actually what are the changes in the hormones? Where are we at with regard to the hormones? And that has a direct impact. And so we can't be like, this is a broken hip and I need to fix this broken hip, do the surgery, do the rehab, get occupational therapy at home and physiotherapy, and then get you back on your feet. And I know that's massively simplifying that problem, but we need to like, a thousand times factor increase of how complex it is when we are looking at healthcare for women. And I don't think we're paying enough attention into that complexity. And we are not looking at that whole continuum of all these different factors that are involved. Mm -hmm. And picking up on your thought that a hip is not just a hip and chest pain is not just chest pain or macular degeneration is not happening in a vacuum. Many listeners of this podcast are also involved in clinical trial, whether it be protocol development or whether it be patient recruitment for subjects in the trial. And it's been quite uh, well discussed about how underrepresented women might be in these trials and whether that's because of protocol assumptions that, again, we've treated cholesterol or chest pain uh, the same uh, for years. And so that's the way it's done. What are some of the other factors you see where we need to broaden our thinking so that we are more inclusive in clinical trial uh, participation. Definitely. This is very topical, actually, that we bring this up this week, because I just I'm doing an article for the BBC Science Focus at the moment at looking at the gender pain gap. And one of the biggest things is the lack of research in understanding around women's normal before we even think about what could be going wrong and what is abnormal. And a big thing is that FDA, only back in 1991, did FDA agree and allow women to participate in clinical trials where we just started to look at, okay, is this safe and is this effective when we're looking at a potential drug? Could this be used? And as you say, do we need to be thinking about? And then now we see the Biden um, administration just um, announcing their first White House initiative with regard to we need to be doing a lot more with regard to women's health research in the US. So I think that at a kind of 40,000 foot level, we're, we're starting to make the right moves. And I really hope that 
actually comes to fruition. The big thing I would say, and I have kept talking about it quite loudly this week, is that basically we just need the money. We need the money to do the research at the scale at which we have done so much research in other areas. And one particular place that I speak to a lot with people in the kind of more biotech side or in clinical trials is that if it what's happened to all those drug assets that were assessed in a pipeline across all of pharma that was only assessed in males and we went now that's not effective and that just dropped out of the pipeline in its normal way that it should do and we never looked at it whether it would have been effective in women and I think what we're starting to see is not so much we're at the place with regard to going back and looking at treatments I would like us to get there as soon as possible but we're starting to go back at least and look at different diagnostic parameters so there was some research done in the UK um, that just came out quite recently looking at the fact that probably we are misdiagnosing and missing a lot of type 2 diabetes mellitus in women because we have used parameters that more than likely pick up type 2 diabetes in males but does not confer to picking it up in females and we need a different set of parameters like a normal to abnormal level will be at different levels with in women and I think it's just if I could say anything, my key take home would be is that we all need to get into our head, whether we're looking at it from a patient or provider, researcher, scientist, whoever point of view, we need to really take on board that we need to look at things completely differently. And everything that we did think was true, and I say this as a clinician myself, who has practiced for well over a decade in the NHS as a gynecologist, that what I thought was true was actually probably true for a male and not true for a female. And exactly. we need to look at this completely differently. And where I was talking back in the summer and someone said, where would you like to be? And I said, in a certain amount of time in the future, I would like to think that if I sat in an ER department as a physician and somebody would come to me and we're talking about personalized medicine and the event of genomic medicine and stratification and risk stratification, population segmentation, what we can do with all of this big data, AI, da, 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 da. and I said, I would just like to be able to say you're male or you're female and I'm going to go on to two different templates with two different data sets collecting different information that is relevant to it's not going to be relevant to everybody but it's just I'm going to treat you and see you and manage you differently because there is a different research data sets that sits underneath this and I acknowledge that there is a biological difference here and I need to review that differently. So good. And thinking about the implications of this, then in uh, drug and you know medical device development, uh, you're sitting in the boardrooms often as a medical and clinical advisor to startups and companies trying to develop and grow and even diversify their women's health offerings. How do you translate that then into here's where technology could take us, or here's where new drug what would I say the receptors or channels or new drug mode of actions might take us. Uh, and what are you seeing that you're particularly excited about? Yeah, I think um, what's really important is I'm really keen when I'm sitting in those rooms is to 
emphasize the fact that we've already missed a lot of time. We It's a massively underserved, under-researched, underfunded area looking specifically at the healthcare of women. And therefore, we're really on a race against ourselves in, in the best way possible. And let's not try and necessarily reinvent the wheel. And I don't mean that in a pessimistic way. I just mean that in a much more optimistic way of saying, look, let's just think about how can we get to where we need to be as fast as possible. What do we already have in place? What do we already know? What can we springboard off? And let's not, let's pool our resources as much as possible. And then with that in mind, focus purely on what is the impact that end user, ultimately that woman or girl is going to experience and feel. And ultimately, a lot of what we see is they want to feel better. They want to be healthier. They want to have better clinical outcomes, but they also want to obviously have better outcomes at home and in work and in relationships and everything else. And so there is a lot of focus at the moment in women's health around identifying the pain point and saying, look, I think there's this great bit of technology that really addresses the pain point. And what I find myself saying again and again is in the nicest possible way, so what? We recognize the pain point is there. We need to be aware and acknowledge the pain point, but focus on the outcome because that's focusing on the success, not focusing on the problem in hand. And I think too much emphasis is put on the pain point without thinking like, where will this take this woman? How will this impact the woman? What will be better in this woman's life, whether it be their quality of life, their quantity of life, their morbidity, their mortality, what will improve? Because that's what we need to focus on. And that is what's going to be successful. And that success is going to pave the way for more growth and success for their company, but also all the companies in this space. We need to be focusing on that woman. Who is the user? What do they need? And that takes us nicely back to the original point of what are patients asking for and what do they need? And as I say, women's healthcare, it is very fast paced. It's moving very quickly. Women, thankfully, are becoming much more knowledgeable and aware and empowered and can advocate for themselves. And they know a little bit more. Some know a lot more, some don't know much more, but it really is a spectrum. But I hope that will only increase and reach a really high standard where they are sitting there saying, look, I know what I need and I need your help to get it. And mm -hmm. I think all of that goes back to that feeling that I've seen in my time as a clinician and very much when I was at medical school and training is it was the old way of that paternalistic model where you would go and see a doctor and a doctor would tell you what was wrong, tell you what needed to do. And whether you agreed with it or not, you're just going to do it. And we know that failed. Yes. And from the patient's point of view, I can't tell you, through the hundreds of patient interviews and patient advocacy groups I've worked with, there's another part that says, I went to the physician, they told me what they thought it was, they gave me a treatment they thought would work, but as it turns out, it wasn't it, and that treatment didn't work. So seven years later, I finally got to a specialist who did figure it out. And, and I'm sure you've been on the other side of that conversation, but there's a lot of patients who say, I just wanted to be heard, like you said. I know my body. 
I know I've done my some of my research and I've been to three other doctors, you know. So I mainly what I want is to be heard. Yeah, a hundred percent. It's so crucial. And that's always the number one thing when we see time and time again, no matter what you're thinking about with regard to innovation or you really are at the kind of coalface seeing multiple numbers of patients day in, day out, that theme is never going to change. It always needs to be thought about. It's a two-way situation. And as healthcare professionals, we are nothing if we don't have our patients. We need feedback from them and they've got to, it's got, it's got to come from them. And of course, if we're not listening and we don't show to be actively listening, then you really are putting up all these barriers in front of you as you're speaking to that patient. And you can see patients just shut down and roll their eyes because they're like, here we go again. This is another somebody who thinks they know better than me or brushes off and say, oh, that's perfectly normal. And that's something that we see in um, women's health so much, which, you know, is a real pet peeve of mine because, and I've been very open about it, I fully recognise that I did this in years gone by where I'd say, oh, that's just normal. Women post-delivery would be struggling to to pass urine. Um, They just had a vaginal delivery, struggling to pass urine or bleeding a lot. That's normal. That's normal. And everything from what I am saying to how I'm behaving, my hand movements is dismissive. It's not listening to it. And that doesn't come from a bad place. It doesn't come from me not wanting to know what's going on. It's because I'm when I say it's normal, what I actually mean by that is something so much more nuanced, which is I expect it because I understand what has happened at the biology level. I understand what's gone on with those organs, with those tissues. I understand what is happening and the consequences of having just had a vaginal delivery. I get the physiology of where we're at and I get then why we're having an impact on your bladder and then why you are having difficulty passing urine. And that just gets completely squeezed down to that's normal. And there's that woman who quite often in her in this example, it's her first time that she's had that vaginal delivery is going, this is not normal for me because this has never happened to me. And what I've got is being told it's normal. And so I just internalize it. I accept that somebody in front of me who I purport to know better is telling me it's normal and nothing to worry about and then we wonder why people don't speak up and why people take so long to talk about what's going on because for so long they've been told that's normal and of course if then someone's got some blood when they're passing urine they're like I'm sure that's just normal because the doctor already said this is going to be normal and you can see how this just spirals and it's not even in that one period that's just that goes on and on throughout all these different phases in life and it's really interesting that in the UK some of the biggest campaigns that are really having major success are ones where we're just really trying to break down what we're talking about when we say it's normal quote unquote in actually saying that's not normal that's Mm -hmm. not okay that's not it might be common it might happen to a lot of women you might find in your friends or with your colleagues that a lot of you are suffering from it but it isn't normal 
and there may not need to be anything to be done about it but we need to take the time to explain that this is expected or this can happen or this will be something that is okay for a day but if it goes on for a day more than a day we need to know about it and really lay that out and that I think just pinpoints to how there is a real awareness and education gap right now in in the health of women and girls and I look at my two daughters what are they being taught and I think that they're taught a lot they know their you know the genital anatomy they know the difference between a vulva and vagina they're 11 and 9 and they have known it for years and years and yet their teachers are saying to them how do you know this Mm -hmm. that's why we're not going to be talking about that right now and I will write stern letters yes they are going to know this and they're (laughs) not going to call it all these weird and wonderful names that means nothing and one of my colleagues the other day a doctor colleague of mine who's a real advocate in women's health said she heard a story where her patient's daughter kept saying that a family member was touching her cookie and she was talking about that she doesn't really think this is okay and this is weird. And the mum was batting it off saying, look, you've got to share your food. It's not a problem. And then she realized that the mum would call the vulva a cookie. And that's what her daughter was referring to. And I think when we think about this whole thing around health and being and where stigma and taboo sits there, we need to do a lot around really challenging people to call it out, say what things are called properly, understand what is normal, understand what is not normal, understand what to expect when you start your periods, when you stop your periods, when you're getting pregnant, when you're not pregnant anymore, when you're breastfeeding. There are so many different phases in a woman's life that are not there in a male's. And that's where we're seeing the disparity. And we've never really looked at it in great depth before. And that's thanks, where we need to go. Thanks for sharing these insights. And, and just for the moment, to, to look at it from the other side of the equation, we've been talking about empowering and educating uh, women as patients. But having talked with uh, chiefs of departments at Stanford Medical School and Cedars-Sinai and other university uh, centers, there's a training that needs to happen on the physician side as well, the providers, to be able to take that time and be active listeners. And of course, the argument is I only have seven to 15 minutes. I need to see gosh knows how many patients a day under my uh, health system for reimbursement or whatever it might be. How can we educate and empower physicians to understand how to listen better when the patients speak? Yeah, that. I definitely feel that struggle. It's something that sits with us all the time. And as I say, we it doesn't come from a bad place, I think, in the majority yes. of physicians. It's just really is the time factor and, and how the world works in this current setup. That doesn't mean it shouldn't change. I think that there is a piece that probably goes through more than just the healthcare sector. And I think in my business in consultancy of working with these companies, I employed a lot of my skills that I learned during medical training, which was just to be quiet for the first few minutes. Mm. Just be like, you just tell me. Because what I realized is that it's not for me to decide what is a problem for that patient in front of me. It's not for me to prioritize that. I will obviously do my safety netting and check in and be like, are any of these red flag symptoms that we talk about, which are real concerns to us that we can't miss? 
But if you want to start with X symptom or Y symptom, that's up to you. And by the way that you're starting with it, the way that you prioritize things, what you talk about is giving me so much information about where you are, how this is impacting you and what are you looking for? And I think we used to laugh and we still do a lot. And I I, I trained at Cambridge University here in the UK and we use the Cambridge Calgary medical training scheme that was developed. And it was really looking at patient communication skills. And there was a whole module around it. And to this day, 20 years on, I and all of my colleagues I know will talk about this simple acronym that we remember, which is ICE, of the whole ideas, concerns and expectations. And I don't know whether that's cropped up with you, Mm -hmm. but it just frames the conversation to just start with of what are you thinking? Because Often we'll see people and I would say an awful lot of people will always catastrophize what's going on. They think it's cancer. They think it's something deadly. They think it's dementia. And, you know, if you can just bring that out quite early on and be like, this is what you're worried about. And in an ideal place, if you can say, I'm not worried about that at all, you're going to move that whole dialogue on so much better because it's just sitting as a block in their head and you can see it it really is a weight on their shoulders and they can't talk about anything because they're just like I'm poised ready for the doctor to tell me that this is cancer Mm -hmm. I'm so scared I've worked myself up into this so if you can get that out as soon as possible then you can actually get to the real conversation of how is this going to improve and what are you looking for and that was your biggest worry but now we can just say no that's not a problem or I'm going to do this test to rule that out, but I really don't think that's an issue, then you can move into. So putting that to one side, let's then talk about where you're at. And if you can't rule it out, and if worst case scenario, that is on your differential and you're thinking it could well be, then it's that's what I would always say as my second point of be honest, be transparent. I find my best consultations when I was working clinically would come from, I'm just going to tell you what I am thinking. Mm-hmm. And it's really taking, accepting, and it's definitely worked for me, is that we're all humans and you've got to show your human side. And I think you've got to say, you seem so worried about this, or you this doesn't seem to be everything that's going on. And correct me if I'm wrong, but where are you at with that? And having that conversation, rather than just be like, chest pain, head pain, back pain, as though it's a tick list. Yeah, check, check. And it's just, it's not going to get you anywhere, but it's difficult. And I think the biggest thing that doesn't get talked about in medicine is to do that and to do it well is a very emotionally and mentally tiring. It's incredible. You really are being the confidant to person after person on a seven minute batting. You go and see a marriage therapist or a personal development work coach, they've got hours with you. Mm-hmm. And yet you're expecting a doctor to pull out the most sensitive information from you that possibly is your biggest nightmare that has so many complexities to it in seven minutes. Yes. It's a hard task. And to hear from both sides, I, I remember in some focus groups where we actually had patients and doctors, not their doctors, but patients and doctors Mm. in the same room. And uh, to your point earlier about it's normal, the patients heard the doctor say, oh, that's normal. What the doctor said they thought they said was, you're not alone. 
Others have felt this way too. And I have some approaches that we could try. And so there was definitely because of this emotional logjam that you brought this cloud into the office Mm. with you, your hearing was a little bit distorted and their probably speaking was a little bit distorted. So clearing that up could help a lot, couldn't it? Yeah, massively. And and yeah, you're exactly right saying that this is really common. Don't worry about this. And all of these thoughts are in our head. And I'm just like, got to get them out. You've got to speak them out. And this is where I feel that if we were looking at anything, and, and this is a big issue in women's healthcare, because so much has been normalized. And so much has been said, you don't need to worry about it. You don't need to bring that up. That's just what's to be expected. And therefore, where we then get to is is a place that is really difficult to actually encourage these, get rid of these clouds, as you say, and encourage really good, effective consultations. But I think a big thing is actually, this is where technology could really have a significant impact. So that people, when it comes to trying to collect that information, collect those concerns and worries. And so not everything is bombarded in this very intense, very short episode. Um, And you're actually like, okay, I've got this information to hand and maybe I've reviewed this information. Maybe you as the patient have been tracking this for the last six months and that's collected it really nicely to give you a summary that you can talk from and it's pointers from you because there's also that feeling. And I get that even as a doctor, man, I'm so nervous when I go and see the doctor. And I'm definitely number one on catastrophizing because I will have already gone through the difference. So I'm like, I'm definitely dying every single time. People ask Um, me, oh, you talk to doctors all day long. I said, yeah, but you get in that room and you're in either sometimes in the gown and you're on the table and the doctor's standing up and you're sitting down and there you talk about paternalistic. It's yeah, (laughs) it is. It's so significant. And that's not what the doctor is thinking at all. They're just really trying to help and reach that person. But there are a lot of challenges in the way. And I love it when a patient would come to me and say, and it would always be, I'm so embarrassed, but do you mind if I just get this out of my handbag? I've been recording some bits around my period and everything. I'm like, I love it. Bring it all. Bring, it. Bring all your little notelets and your diaries and what you've written on your hand. And you can, and when I will say that to women, I'll say, I see you've got some bullet points on your hand. Do you want to talk about that? Because I know it's really putting yourself in their shoes that they will be like really working themselves up and being like, these are the things I must talk about. But they won't start there. They'll start with, oh, it's probably nothing. And I didn't. And you're like, yeah, but even though that's coming out of your mouth, what you're thinking is, I think I'm going to die. I think this is the end for me. Because you have that on your hand or your nose. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's so So, um, Really put yourself in their shoes. My guest has been Dr. Michelle Griffin. Michelle, what a terrific conversation. I've really enjoyed talking to you. You've really brought some, not only for academia, but the real world practice that you've been in as a clinician. And I really appreciate you bringing that. Michelle is a director of her own consulting group, MFG Health Consulting. She's also a clinical and commercial advisor for Holland and Barrett, and is a consultant for many pharma and med tech companies in the area of women's health. I'd like to close, Michelle, with your call to action to us that I really wanted to circle back to the very beginning. And it's like women's health is not just about reproduction, but it's not just about anatomy, 
But give us the broad call to action of how we can address a women's health differently than we do today. I think the biggest thing is recognizing that it is different and therefore it needs a different set of tools and thinking and practices to really master it and improve the standard of healthcare for women. And we all have a part to play in that. And I think the biggest thing is just whoever you are, recognizing that you have a part there to play and what can you do in that? And if you're on the patient side of things, do as much as you can to communicate what you're feeling, what you're experiencing, own your kind of body and your mind and understand what's going on and speak up for yourself and advocate for yourself as much as possible. And on the healthcare professional side, on the scientist, researcher, journalist, and all of those different professional sides, be searching and looking for what else can be done what else is going on here because this is a different type of medicine it's medicine it's healthcare it's well-being for a woman and so far our focus has been on the default of males and we need to look to address that very good thanks to uh, dr michelle griffin for being our guest and it's so great to hear all these perspectives from doctor health educator strategist and business advisor all rolled into one person michelle i've really enjoyed it and I look forward oh, to continuing so to reading uh, your, your articles. I was telling you, I read about you in Wired Magazine, but this BBC Science is another. And just following you on Instagram, you'll learn a lot and you get a lot of uh, inspiration. So thanks for all those channels of communication that you're putting out. Great. Thank you. Look forward you to seeing you there. Yes. And listeners, come back again next time. We're going to continue our conversation with medical researchers, patient advocates, and frontline healthcare providers, as well as the researchers and even marketers at companies who are developing new technologies, new treatments, and new clinical trials to accelerate this patient journey we've been talking about from diagnosis to wellness. So until next time, I'm Mark Stinson, and we're continuing to encourage you to listen to the patients speak. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to The Patients Speak, healthcare innovations accelerating the patient journey with best-selling author Mark Stinson. Our podcast is hosted on Captivate.fm, so you can listen wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe now so you won't miss an episode of The Patients Speak. This podcast is produced by BSB Media. We also host another show you might enjoy, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. It's a top-rated podcast featuring interviews with creators around the world. We help you gain the confidence and connections to launch your creative work out into the world. Look for Unlocking Your World of Creativity on your favorite podcast app.